Hi, this is Bob Murphy, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome, everybody, to the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and today we have another annotated Christians for Liberty talk to share with you today. And this one is going to be by Dr. Norman Horn, who is the founder and president of the Libertarian Christian Institute. The talk that we're going to be discussing today is from 2014 Christians for Liberty, which would have been the first year we had the Christians for Liberty Conference in Austin, Texas. Norman's talk was called The Biblical Foundations of Christian Libertarianism. So the idea we have here is that we are going to pause the recording every so often and reflect as a group on what Norman said in the talk. Maybe Norman has some different ways of putting it. Maybe we have some questions for clarification. Maybe there's a different way to elaborate on something, or maybe maybe there's some things that we would say differently. So we want to give you something more than just some audio that we had on file, and so we hope that this will be fresh and new rather than just another talk. So we are going to jump right in, and here is Norman. And now I will begin with our opening talk for today, the biblical foundations of Christian libertarianism. For the remainder of this time, I want to give you an outline of my thoughts regarding the foundational reasons and biblical texts for why a conference like this exists in the first place. Uh, First off, I like to say at times that we're on a mission from God. Much like Jake and Elwood, uh, we have a a mission, and that mission is is very simple. Uh, Christians often have a pretty distorted view of what government is, what government's purpose really is. And Christian libertarianism fundamentally is a way in which uh, what we're seeking to do is show how how biblical principles can be applied uh, to libertarian principles, and to, sit, and to show how those things jive together very well. Libertarianism, in my view, is the, most con- is the most consistent expression of Christian political thought. So fundamentally, that's what we're here for. We have some sort of intuition that the way things that we are, are typically taught are not quite right but that what we find in the libertarian political philosophy seems to make, a, uh, make much sense with, res- with our uh, understanding of biblical principles as well. So what are some of the, uh, of the ways in which uh, Christians can misconceive of how, of how government works and, and what its purpose is? I, I contend that there are at least four misconceptions for, uh, for how Christians typically approach um, politics. Uh, for one thing, Christianity does not does not advocate socialism. Uh, con- we do see in some cases some, some unusual texts in the Bible that might suggest to us something, uh, something contrary to this. Acts 2, for instance, we, in verses 42 through 47, we see that the believers there in the early church hold, were holding all things in common. In Acts 4.32, it even says that no one claimed possessions were their own. But even in Acts 5, shortly thereafter, when Ananias and Sapphira come and lay a, a, an offering before the disciples' feet, it is presumed even then that they own what they are giving, that they are voluntarily giving that. Now, socialism, where the means of production are owned by the state, has no justification through this narrative. All, it, all that this narrative really suggests to us is that voluntary charity is a, is, a, is a means by which we can help support our friends, our family, our church. It is a, it is a fallacy to assume that just by appealing to the Acts narrative that we can justify a socialist-styled government. Moreover, and this is, I think, very, very critical, Christianity does not glorify violence and war. Now, this should be self-explanatory to us, but unfortunately for the modern church, it's not. We should always press the question with our fellow Christians of how supporting wholesale slaughter war, and aggressive invasion of nations who've done nothing against us, or even dropping atomic bombs can possibly be consistent with the Christianity one finds in the New Testament. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace for a reason. 
His message of loving our enemies, praying for our persecutors, even turning the other cheek is clearly something that runs against uh, what often governments uh, choose to make their mission. Christian love really has extraordinary extension, and it's a, and it's a fallacy to think that, that the Bible, that New Testament Christianity in any way supports violence and war against others. In John 16, 33, we read uh, in, the, in the Last Supper, Jesus tells his disciples, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you're going to have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And it's through the gospel that we can overcome violence and even war. Uh, another misconception that people hold is that Christianity does not advocate a theocratic state. It's not as if God has commanded us that because some states are bad, we just need to start a new one and then stock it with just the right people. In Matthew 20, uh, we read, we, we read uh, uh, as Jesus is talking to a few of his disciples about who is to be the greatest, Jesus calls them together and says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Later, Jesus says in John 18, 36, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. Is that not a, is that not a telling statement? about the nature of the kingdom of God. Nowhere in the Bible do Christians receive a mandate to monopolize and institutionalize any apparatus of violence, and that is fundamentally what the state ends up becoming. And in truth, leading right into the, into the next part, is that Christianity really contains no theory at all to justify statism. Now, contrary to what many people say as the basis of their starting theology of politics, uh, they tend to bring up Romans 13 or rendering to Caesar as this is how we are to, uh, to interact with the state. But contrary to that, the whole of Scripture, if you look at it in context, has very little positive things to say about the state, as we shall see in a moment. We don't want to rush too quickly uh, to conclusions from very limited data. One of the important things that Norman brought up in his talk there really had to do with uh, the difference between what is voluntary and what is coercive. So, I mean, he, he mentioned Acts chapter two, and these are, are passages and concepts that are often cited by the so-called Christian left or, or progressive Christians to argue for redistributionist economics uh, and basically utilizing the state, uh, be it whether they call it socialism or communism or just whatever they happen to call it. There's a variety of labels, but using the Some state. Some just call it democracy. Yes, they do. <laughs> uh, communitarianism, that's another one. Yeah, and I mean, but, but, but they all sort of hinge on this same idea that we're going to use the state and pool our common resources and, and all these canards that, that come from the secular left as well. And, uh, you know, it, it, we, we've had some conversations with, with people who are uh, loosely identified, at least, with the Christian left. And, I mean, I've, I've certainly benefited in other ways from reading their works on, on certain issues. But on this, on this issue of economics, I mean, it's, I, I've never seen someone from the Christian left who can explain to me in a coherent way how using state force— which is essentially the the heart of empire, doesn't intrinsically conflict with these values that they are, you know, supposedly trying to reach. And I mean, the the interesting thing is that many of the people who are, especially now, can, like, I'm not going to cite specific names necessarily, but there, there there's quite a few of them who are putting out works and commentaries and, and things of that sort today. Uh, that are really helping the libertarian Christian movement by bolstering that kind of underlying theology of anti-empire and pro-community. But these very same people then turn around and say things like, we need more taxes on the rich, and we need to use the welfare state to support the poor. And like the, the cognitive dissonance is just 
tragic and fascinating how they don't see that these are the very things that empower uh, the, the the kingdoms of the world, not not the kingdom of Christ. So, really, getting back to that idea that you know, the the, the non-aggression principle is the baseline of libertarianism, and if we, as the church, you know, there there are things that God commands us to do, including the sharing of our resources with other believers, helping the poor, not hoarding wealth as, as a miser. I mean, these are all things that we're commanded to do, but if it's voluntary, if it's done from the heart, uh, on, on the basis of the command of Christ, it is by definition not socialism, and is is not being done with the state. And I think this is this is lost on most people today. I think the misconception comes with the definition of socialism. I think it's become a little bit more popular to talk about socialism as this vision for society where everyone gets along and we're all, you know, we share and we don't have all this conflict over things because, you know, maybe we're just, we're, we're better than to, you know, use money to figure out who should have what. And so I think the, the vision that you see in, in the book of Acts looks appealing in that look what happens when people are empowered by the Holy spirit to be part of God's kingdom and God in his word has said and and God has said using scripture as you know an example to say here here's what you know human flourishing looks like is when everybody you know gives gives up what they have to others who are in need and so the the term socialism has now become used to kind of envision that way of thinking rather than sort of a purely economic definition and I think that's why there's a little bit of dissonance there because they don't see socialism as this, you know, the means of production run by the state. The irony there as well is that they are presuming that they can establish that Acts chapter 4 mentality without the use of the Holy Spirit, as if that they could just make it happen through force of will, or really force of force. That's not the way it's going to work. And, and that's the irony of it all, is that even in what we what we see in in Acts chapter four as being you know this this sharing mentality and whatnot it's still being done voluntarily through the Holy Spirit. Do you think that that's something that you're going to just be able to enforce through the state? That's lunacy. Well, not only that, it seems to me that you know your third point that there's a misconception that Christianity does not advocate a three theocratic state. It's it's almost like the left wants to enforce a theocratic state, but just in these areas. Yeah, and that's a, that's another funny thing too is that uh, if I were to word anything differently now than what I did before or maybe just add in, you know, it's it, it, Christianity does not just try to justify a three a theocratic state. You know, like I said, we're not trying to say, okay, well, we don't like the state we got, so let's reform it and figure out who to who we should put in charge from our own people. We need Christians in charge of everything. That would make everything run better. Like we actually, a lot of people kind of recognize that's sort of a bad idea, except for some, some small subgroups, of course. But the, on the contrary, though, they also suggest, well, okay, maybe we shouldn't do that. But what we should do is advocate for a secular state and make sure we have the right secular people involved doing all the secular things that are just right and good, as if as if somehow that would be better too. And uh, there's a little bit of more irony there to to go around. I've I've often wondered. I, I've had people, friends of mine that have said, you know, they're hard left and they're not even Christian who say things like, you know, I just want to get the government and religion, you know, separation of church and state. I don't want religion influencing government. And I'm, I, I often want to say to them sort of playing devil's advocate. I'm like, well, you know, Jesus said that we should feed the poor, like play that card so that they can be like, oh, wait, you mean when I want this kind of socialism that I'm advocating for a form of Christian theology, like almost to make them like run away from it. It's interesting you'd mention that, Doug, because of course, you know, in another couple of weeks, we're going to be posting about statism as a religion uh, with Jason Rink's talk from a few years ago. And I think that's that's actually relevant here to mention is that, you know, you really can't have a state without incorporating some type of religious element to it. Because a state can't survive without that religious fervor essentially being associated with it, if not from a uh, a theistic point of view of some kind, where you're you know advocating for some type of god, then imposing theistic attributes 
onto the state itself, which is more often than not what's happening in the modern day and age. You know, and the other thing about this whole thing of Acts, where the church, you know, held everything in common, it wasn't just that it was voluntary, it was not 300 million people. It was a couple thousand people where this worked. And is this scalable? I think an economic question, the, the economic side of that question is, no, it's not. I mean, even F.A. Hayek would sort sort of justified in the road to serfdom that, you know, smaller pockets of what we might consider socialism will, would be fine, but you, you can't scale it. And precisely because it's one, you can't scale it and make it and keep it voluntary. And so therefore you need the state and you need violence to enforce it. So there are also, I would say, four connections I would say, as to what brings libertarianism as a, into, into Christianity as being the consistent expression of our political thought. Here are a few connections that I see in some of the justifications that I would, I would line up. Uh, first off, Christianity reinforces a libertarian theory of property rights. Now, the Bible doesn't spell this out entirely, but it really shouldn't have to. It's a very obvious thing in many respects. The backdrop of all biblical law really shows a clear assumption of property rights in land, in person, and in possessions. Direct commands such as do not kill and do not steal are very simple, clear indicators that God takes aggression against person and property very seriously. And likewise, uh, I would say that the golden rule, in fact, is, a, is another indicator. Uh, that we are to treat others as the, in the way that we would want to be treated, suggests that we ought to treat others' person and property in that way as well. Uh, Christianity loves the free market and peaceful interaction. God's project on earth fundamentally is for His creation to flourish and to act in, in some manner independently, to be creative. The dominion mandate necessitates that humans cooperate in order to make this happen. Now, we are repeatedly admonished by God to be part of and to support our communities. But proper community can only occur when people can freely seek ways to work together and to satisfy each other's needs through useful work. God has left this very open to us, uh, to us humans in this world. We're, it's, he's left it very much open to His creatures to create on their own. And it's really dehumanizing to subvert this emergent order with central planning and institutionalized control. Christianity affirms that no one should receive special moral privileges of position. All throughout Scripture, God judges by the same moral standard, as we read in Psalm 96 even. No one, not a king, nor a prophet, not a soldier, nor a merchant, no one gets a pass because of their position. On the contrary, often some of these people are judged even more strictly because of the power that they have. God will, quote, give each, to each person according to what, is, what, to what he has done, for God does not show favoritism. That's in Romans chapter 2, verses 8 and verse 11. James two, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. In that particular passage, James is talking about the treatment of the poor, but it also runs the other direction, that if we show that certain people have special privileges because of the fact that they were, say, democratically elected or because they were born to the right people, special privilege is not, is not justified by God either. No one, no one gets a pass because they have a uniform or a mandate or a representative beside their name. God clearly also says that ends do not justify means. You don't get a pass because well, you're just doing what's good for society or something like that. In Romans 3, chapter 8, we read, Why not say, let us do evil that good may result? That con their condemnation, those who say such things, their condemnation is deserved. Christianity is just as concerned with, with their means, with means as, they are, as we are with our ends. Finally, Christianity says that the state is a rebellion against man's God-given nature and purpose. From these connections that we're already seeing and these misconceptions that people have already have had, we can begin to see that there is an antipathy building between the institution of the state and the Christian way of life. But what other examples do we have from Scripture about the state? What does, what does, a, um, what does the Bible really say about st the state and, the, and government? 
I contend that there are a number of examples throughout Scripture that suggest that the way that, that, the way that we should view the state is not, any, is not positive at all. First off, let us go to Genesis chapter 10 and 11. I want to read this very briefly. Genesis 11, starting in verse 1, it says, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower of what, that the men were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. And that is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now, the book of Genesis is a book about origins. No matter how you view it, whether it's pure history or whether there is, uh, are, are uh, non-historical aspects, this theological narrative sets the stage of the entire world. It set the stage for the Jewish people and teaches us a theology of why things are the way they are. In Genesis 10 and 11, this is a narrative that is full of symbols. And in, and in my view, and I think that this is well justified, the Tower of Babel really is the origin story of the state. And the story here begins shortly after the flood. The people have congregated together, potentially for mutual benefit and trade. God has commanded them again in the, in the wake of the flood to begin again in the task of spreading over the face of the earth. Now, there's a person named in chapter 10. His name is Nimrod. It is said that he is the first king of, uh, in fact, of, of Babylon. And that is, and that is in exactly where, uh, where Babel is. Babel is historical Babylon. Nimrod is actually called in most translations in, in chapter 10, a mighty hunter before the Lord. But another way to translate that word actually is a mighty rebel, and which actually makes more sense considering what happens next. They conspired in Babel to build this tower that according to Genesis would reach to the heavens and symbolize their ability to be gods themselves. Josephus in the Antiquities indicates that Nimrod actually inspires this rebellion, naturally because he is the first king of Babel, and that they believed they could even attack heaven and avenge themselves against God for causing the great flood, indicating again that they would not become scattered in, in, uh, in verse 7. God, in order to, to punish but not destroy them, sent confusion by causing them to speak different languages. They scattered, partly fulfilling God's plan to spread humankind at this point. And on the plains of Shinar, the, the full kingdom of Babylon was built. Now remember, this is, uh, the, the kingdom of Babylon is consistently referenced throughout the Bible as an abomination. And, in, and I think the, the, the correct interpretation is to see Babylon throughout Scripture as representing human government. The incident ultimately brings to mind the words of Paul in the book of Romans in uh, chapter 1, verses 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And does that not sound like what the state ultimately does? The state it, it always begins as a usurpation of God's authority. Now, we often miss the symbols in this text. The tower is more than just a building. It is, a represent, it is representative of the collective of men who seek to displace God. Likewise, the bricks that are mentioned are also more than just building materials even. The text specifically says they rejected stones in order to build. Hebrew scholars have long said that, the, that stones in, in the Old Testament represent God's action of creating individuals. Stones have character on their own, and it takes craft to shape them. Bricks, however, are, represent a dissolution of individuality. And this actually comes into play in the next narrative that we will examine, the book of Exodus. Carlton Heston joins us for this remark. <laughs> Exodus 1 through 15 represents perhaps the greatest narrative in the Old Testament, that of the liberation of God's people. 
And in fact, it is a type in many respects of what happens in the New Testament, where Jesus liberates humankind from all sin. But it's significant to see what are they liberated from and what is going on at the time. When we find the Hebrew people in slavery in Exodus, uh, the early chapters of Exodus, what are they doing? For the most part, they're building bricks. This is, again, a connection back to, uh, to Genesis chapter 11 as well. What Egypt is doing in enslaving them, and this is what happens in any state that, that attempts to oppress its people, is that they try very hard to dissolve their individuality. God's plan for everyone is to be able to flourish, to be able to become the person that God intended them to be. That cannot happen when people are in bondage like that. What we find in the book of Exodus and throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament is that God is consistently on the side of the oppressed. Who is doing the oppressing? Almost invariably, it is the, the human governments of the world. On this issue of co-creation, this is, this is something that I, I think is really underappreciated in a lot of contemporary theology and, and, and thinking that really was more uh, profound and, and well understood maybe in the Middle Ages and in earlier parts of Christian history. But it's this idea that as God is creator and we're made in the image of God, we too must be creators. Man is meant to, to, to build, to grow civilization. And ultimately, as we, as we find revealed in the new covenant, to build forth the kingdom of God. But when the state steps in, like Norman was talking about, its tendency is to suppress these things. And one of the issues that it, it really is is almost exclusively talked about in, in libertarian circles, some progressive and conservative circles also, but mostly libertarian circles, is intellectual property. And it's this idea that somehow thoughts can be owned exclusively, and the state, by legislative fiat, can prohibit other people from using thoughts that you might have had and ideas that you might have come up with. And from this flows forth patent law, copyright law, all these various things, uh, the, the tendency of which is to restrict innovation. So, you know, in one sense, you could argue that it's it, 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 it's economically beneficial for inventors, maybe, to have this type of law in force, but who who suffers is the the rest of humanity, other other inventors, other entrepreneurs, consumers. All of us are worse off and more poor than we otherwise would be insofar as innovation has been stifled, the economy has been held back. Uh, but even more importantly, theologically, the creative powers of man have been constrained by these rules and regulations. Uh, and, and I mean, there, there, there's a lot of questions that can be raised here, like, I mean, can you even own an idea? Can an idea truly be property in the libertarian sense? I mean, I would say no. Property has to be something tangible, something that if you – if you if somebody takes it, quote unquote, you no longer have it. You've been deprived for someone else to gain. That's theft. That's real property can be stolen. An idea can't really be stolen. And actually, there's there's an article. Maybe we'll we'll link to it in the show notes that was written many years ago by Vern Poitras, who's a biblical scholar, theologian out of Westminster, um, criticizing intellectual property theologically. Uh, and this is just something that, that the church and I think particularly libertarian Christians really need to consider uh, the, the nefarious manner in which the state in this regard uh, is, is, is chaining down our God-given mandate to create. I completely agree with you, Nick. The, to me, the way I kind of conceptualize it is that Property is a function or a result. The idea of property is a result of the nature of scarcity. And if something cannot be scarce, it can't really be owned in the same way that, you know, my bicycle is mine. If you take it, 
you, I no longer have it in the same way you just described. So to copy something is not the same as to take it. They're very different things. Now, it might affect the value of it uh, on the market, but that's very different from calling it you know, theft. You don't own the value of something. You own the thing itself. That's actually quite right. the <laughs> it's it's quite the uh, the opposite of ownership. In fact, is va of value. Um, but to be to be sure, you know, there's there has been a lot of interesting work by great libertarians in in the intellectual property space. Uh, this is not something that perhaps we've always been uh, that the libertarian movement has always been great on. Uh, we're still kind of figuring things out to a certain extent, um, but there the 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 crux is there. The foundations are there, and we'll link in the in the show notes here to you know some of the seminal stuff. I'm sure, uh, like we'll make sure and link to Stefan Kinsella's against intellectual property uh, piece that that is uh, just absolutely seminal on the topic. Uh, there are other books like Against Intellectual Monopoly by uh, uh, Boldrin and Levine, and others. But it's but I think Nick is makes a really interesting point in that we as Christians have not really addressed this. And it's not something that people want to talk about, even amongst the in theological circles. It's not really, even if they want to talk about law and the nature of the nature of how law comes to comes into creation uh, via God and natural law and all of these things, intellectual property is not one, one thing to be discussed because uh, oftentimes there are uh, there would be issues uh, amongst the seminaries if suddenly intellectual property were of you know were something to be concerned about. Um, they try to hold copyrights on journals. They want to publish books, and I don't mean to criticize uh, those seminaries in particular, but I think this is sort of the hazard that's that's encountered as a result. Uh, it actually there are instances in Christian history, even in the last couple hundred years, of unusually strange um, conflicts within the church itself over copyright, over intellectual property type issues, and they're underappreciated. I hope that some in some future date to write more about this, uh, to publish on this, I've got some interesting you know, historical points to make in that regard. I think there's just so much more work here to do. I would challenge any thinking Christian interested in libertarian ideas to, uh, to go after this uh, in history and in, and in biblical thought as well and trying and really synthesize this into something that is uh, more comprehensive. So I want to sort of raise the question, why should a Christian be that interested in intellectual property? I mean, obviously, Christianity, you know, one of your points, Norman, in the talk was Christianity reinforces a libertarian theory of property rights. This whole intellectual property thing, while we think it's important, that it is kind of an in-the-weeds sort of debate, because it is, I mean, I don't know many non-libertarians debating this. Maybe, maybe there are many, but this seems to be a sort of, you know, insider baseball kind of game going on. And why is it that a Christian should be should be concerned or interested in it? And what does that have to do with being co-creators? Well, for, for one thing, I would say this is actually it's precisely because of our mandate to be co-creators uh, that this is of issue in Christian thought. Now, on on some level, it's just the truth of the matter. We need. To, we want to understand truth. We want to understand creation as God intended it. We want to understand the proper nature of law and of what this world is supposed to look like, uh, you know, from God's point of view. And if and if intellectual property is a problem, then we at least should have some understanding of it, um, it from a Christian point of view. Not to mention that actually, I would say that there, you know, just from a purely libertarian philosophical standpoint, uh, this. I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest, or a lot of people have argued this for at, le at the very least, that it is one of the larger issues in uh, in in freedom itself that is uh, that is truly underappreciated. Uh, e even if you just polled libertarians today, you will you will not get uh, a, a particularly uh, you know, cohesive uh, survey result that says here's here is the predominant libertarian view on the topic. It's something that has grown. Even even Murray Rothbard, one of the most important figures in libertarian thought, uh, didn't necessarily approach the level of sophistication on intellectual property that we now have today through the likes of people like Stephen Kinsella, Jeffrey Tucker, and others who have written extensively on the topic and and shown why it, it intellectual property is inconsistent with the libertarian theory of property. 
property rights. And so if we are to uh, seek a consistency uh, or, or try to understand uh, how, how property rights fit into a biblical framework, then I think that's something that has to be addressed. So for the practical aspect of this, you're a Christian and you read up on this issue and you realize, oh, wow, I really don't believe in intellectual property. That's, that's not a, the appropriate way to think. How does that affect the, the life of a Christian? That's a good question. To a certain extent, there's not a lot that you can just do about it in the sense you, you can't just go out and just like, well, I'm just going to ignore all patents today, and that'll change my behavior. <laughs> I mean, that's that's probably not going to happen. Well, but surely it, it affects the person who is is a person who creates and invents. If you're a Christian, you're going to approach your work a little differently, I suppose. Right? I suppose perhaps a, a little, but well, I mean, consider my own position. I'm an engineer, and I'm uh, you know I, I go out and I seek to mix uh, mix ideas and labor together and come up with something new on a regular basis. Um, I have to deal in the intellectual property world uh, as a result of that. I can't just circumvent it. I can't. I, I have to deal with it as it is because I can't interact in the world otherwise right now. But that doesn't mean that I don't want to understand the truth of the matter. Uh, that I want to understand the, the the principles behind the behind these things more concretely. One thing that comes to mind as you're kind of talking about this would be, and I don't think he professes to be a Christian, but Elon Musk, I believe, said that Tesla is not going to pursue legal action um, if somebody wants to use their patents, and that could be an approach that a Christian company, you know, a Christian company owner could take. That if they do invent, they're not going to engage the their legal right to litigate those who steal their patents. I mean, would that be That's, an example of one way to, to kind of just neutralize the fact that, I mean, they can't, I mean, they invent something. I mean, I guess you can not pursue a patent, but then you might go out of business if someone else sues you first. But d does that make sense, though, on a practical level? It might be one way to approach it. It's hard to say because that's uh, that's... That's a very tricky business decision, and I am not an expert enough to be able to just tell someone this is how you should do it. Uh, it's one way you could go, I suppose, but I wouldn't presuppose to to tell someone that is the way that I would want somebody to act. It's it would be difficult in this day and age to to make that judgment. Yeah, along the lines of what Norman was just saying, there are a lot of practical considerations here, just based on the landscape of of the way things are. I mean. For example, you don't even have to just go out and, and file for copyright or patent or anything in order for IP law to automatically be deemed to apply to things you create. So even if you are someone who completely wants to swear off all legal claims to IP, the state kind of imposes it on you uh, under international treaty. And even if you want to waive it, it's not always uh, waivable. So it, it's a very intricate legal landscape. But to kind of take us out to to ways in which this might apply to the average Christian. I mean, just think of all the Bible translations that are that are copyrighted and hymns that are copyrighted. I mean, you 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 almost can't go into church on Sunday without running into numerous instances of copyright. Um, and so, I mean, that that begs the question: Is this influencing the the, the way? that our churches are functioning? Is it influencing the way that the Bibles are being translated? Uh, these are these are important practical con considerations that we really need to, to consider. We can learn a lot more about what states do and what they uh, always try to do in 1 Samuel 7. 1 Samuel 7 is the point at which Israel is demanding a king. And this is a, and this is a, a very unfortunate situation. God is obviously very displeased with what's going on. Samuel is completely distraught. And what happens when Samuel approaches God to talk to, to God about what, what uh, Israel wants, God tells Samuel, the, Isra the Israelites have not rejected you as a judge. They have rejected me. And this is what, this is what Samuel says, actually, in, in, uh, in chapter uh, in chapter. 1 Samuel 8, starting in verse 6. And the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them from out, up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know 
what the king who will reign over them will do. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will, fu- and they will run in front of his chariots. In other words, he will send them to the front lines and they will die. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. In other words, he will order them what they will do with their profession and what they will do with their lives. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will, make a tenth, he will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and, and attendants. That sounds familiar these days, right? <laughs> your men servants and maid servants on the best of your cattle and donkeys, he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, and the Lord will not answer you in that day. Is it not interesting that what he says specifically is they will take a tenth? Now, there's that, that, that joke, if 10% is good enough for Jesus, it ought to be enough for Uncle Sam. But this is actually hearkening back to precisely the command that God gave the Israelites, is that the first tenth, your first fruits, commit to me, and then I will bless you. What this is saying is, in many respects, the king that you are asking for is going to take those first fruits. He is not just stealing from you, he's stealing from me, that being God. If that is not indicting of the state, I don't know what is. Ultimately, states tyrannize their people, and again we see it tries to take the place of God's authority. In Matthew chapter 4, we read about the temptations of Jesus. Now, this is a, a passage that I feel very much I've been, I, in growing even in my own understanding of this particular passage, and I think now that the, temp- the second temptation of Christ here for power actually in many respects uh, is the summation of all of our own temptations towards power. So let's read this together very briefly. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angel came, angels came and attended him. Uh, if we are to believe that Jesus truly came in the flesh and was fully human, and that he was also, as the Scripture says, tempted in every way, then it is entirely consistent to, to say he was tempted with power. And this, these temptations that we read in Matthew chapter 4 and throughout the, the Gospels are really meant to, in, in, in a way, summarize or exemplify the temptations that Jesus faced. This was his, the first recorded temptation for power that he experienced, but it wasn't the only one either. In fact, we read it multiple times that he literally suffers from the, uh, as, as he is trying to reach the Israelite people but cannot. And he knows that he could. He knows he could force it. He knows that that is possible for him to do. But he, and that is a temptation. I think we actually uh, do not necessarily understand at times how deeply Jesus was tempted throughout the Gospels. But this is, is, is definitely an exemplary case of his temptation toward power. What this indicates to us also is that this, the kingdoms of the world belong to the Satan. That's the fact. Jesus doesn't reply to Satan with, oh, no, you actually, you don't own those kingdoms. That's not possible for you to do. In fact, he basically grants him that that is a possibility, that that is something he literally can do, is deliver to him the kingdoms of earth. But he says, no, that is not the purpose of how I am here. That is not the means by which I can accomplish that mission. The kingdoms of earth ultimately are part of, 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 of Satan. Uh, finally, we turn to Revelation. 
as our last example here. In Revelation, we, uh, we experience, a, again, a number of symbols. Now, I think the best way to interpret Revelation is twofold. First is to understand it initially as a prophecy about Rome and about the destruction of Rome and the destruction of Israel in AD 70. But it also holds a, a, a number of symbols that we carry forward and we interpret into our lives today. And that happens in two ways. One is the, the, the battle that we all face against the tyranny of sin over our lives. But it also is representative of the fact that governments are constantly tyrannizing other people. Babylon is representing Rome. Babylon is also representing all governments throughout time as being rebellious against God. What we learn in Revelation is that just as sin's ultimate destiny is destruction, the end destiny of all governments, of all states, is destruction. They will not last. The kingdom of God will prevail. States are destined to, to, be, uh, to just be little footnotes in history, whereas the kingdom of God and what we are doing even here today uh, will last forever. You know, another thing that came to my mind uh, listening to, to this part of your talk there, Norman, is this idea of the myth whereby we think the state has authority. Like, I mean, you know, we we talk quite a bit on on this show and in various LCI content about narrative theology and the way in which the the story of the Bible shapes kind of our understanding of of thinking about the world. And 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 really these are these are important concepts because that that very same principle applies to essentially everything around us. I mean, really everything is driven by some type of myth or narrative uh, that is that is sort of a a subconscious understanding of where we come from and and where we're going. And really, when we think about the state in this regard, uh, in and all the different ways in which people have justified the state. You know, almost nobody today would espouse a belief in what used to be called the divine right of kings, even though if you go back much further in history, that was something that almost everybody took for granted. It was like, oh, of course, the gods uh, have given the king, you know, divine authority to rule, or in some cases in the ancient world, the king was a god. Um, and it seems like in the past 500 years or so, you know, and I, mean, I suppose that's interesting because it's now 2017, and we are exactly 500 years out from the start of the Protestant Reformation. And you know, in, in, in various LCI supporters and listeners come from a variety of denominations, so we're not we're not commenting on that. But just to make the historical observation that since then, in these last 500 years or so, it's kind of become a common line of thought to think that there's this social contract that is somehow divinely approved. So it's almost like Christians have appropriated this secular thought from Rousseau and the French Revolution about the so-called social contract and then stamped God's approval on it. Like God has granted divine mandate to the state to to do these things. And really Luther uh, kind of spelled out that that theory in his understanding of the two kingdoms like you can have you can be a christian and you can do things as a as a kingdom citizen but you're also a citizen of the state in which you live and god wants you to do things as a citizen that aren't necessarily things you do as a christian and that's just really a false dichotomy that's allowed all sorts of craziness in the church it but when we really go back and look at genesis like you were talking about and we see the true origins of the state according to the Bible and specifically Torah in Genesis, um, it, it really paints a very different picture of where God says the state comes from. Would you even say like now that Divine Right of Kings is dead? Interestingly enough, I don't know how many listeners here have watched Netflix's recent series called The Crown, but even in that show, the, the Queen Elizabeth makes intimations that that she rules, in a sense, with a form of divine right. And I'm assuming that that's even marginally historical at all. Is that is that still part of this world today? Well, I think anytime people advocate a Romans 13 mentality, they sort of give implicit consent that, well, there's maybe not the king, because we don't think in, in the U.S. we don't think of kings. But I think that 
it gives sort of a theoretical support for the divine right of kings. Like, it's not so far-fetched of an idea. Well, look at Romans 13, because God is an ordained, you know, authorities. Well, it, it certainly we're seeing, like, divine right of state. Divine right of statism, in a sense, is that's part of the American mythos, in a sense. <laughs> yeah, and, I mean, when you when you refer to Romans 13 there, Doug, I mean, I, I think specifically you're referring to the, the way in which it's been commonly under, understood and, and applied. And I mean, as Norman pointed out in his talk, it's you, we have to at least go back to Romans 12 to get the broader context and really go back to the whole book of Romans and the whole canon of biblical theology. So, I mean, there's a lot more to it than just pulling out that one chapter, but that's, that's oh, the right. way most people – do yeah, it. definitely. That's what I was trying to say. It's like, oh, look, Romans 13. And well, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. We'll talk about Romans 12 and 13 in a little bit. State's final destination is destruction. So I think now, it's, now is only the time that we can really approach Romans 13 and then take a look at that and see, well, what is really going on here? Instead of looking at Romans 13 first, we should look at it after we look at the context of the rest of Scripture. But let's start a little differently. Instead of starting in Romans 13, 1, let's go one verse before. Actually, let's start two verses before. In Romans 12, verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If, you're, if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against this authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no, hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. In Romans 13, we, we find some kind of clever words coming from Paul regarding how to interact with the state. But if we take this again out of the context of what we just read in Romans 12, and what we find throughout Scripture regarding the nature of the state and its activity against men, I think we, can, we end up with a slightly different interpretation. Fundamentally, what this is saying is that everybody must submit, yes. Why do we do this? Prudentially. Our goal on earth is not to just tear down the state. We have better things to do in many respects. The gospel, which we are all stewards of, is a much more important aspect of our lives than simply trying to tell off the state. So what do we do instead? We focus, we pick our battles well, but we focus on the gospel. We don't try to in, intentionally put ourselves in situations that will compromise the gospel. We become very careful with how we interact, and we don't try and, uh, and do things that will try and provoke the state to persecute us if we don't have to. But if we are to be persecuted at all, it should only be for the name of Christ and not because I did a little pinprick on the state. So what we find in Romans 13 is not necessarily some theory to justify the state, but a prudential argument for how we are to interact. As I like to tell my students at, or when I was working with the Libertarian Longhorns, I don't need you in, in prison. I don't want to come and get you out. I need you talking with people. I need you interacting with others. I need you to be on the ground teaching people not just being a gadfly. And I think that's what Romans 13 is essentially telling us as Christians. The state is not outside of God's plan. That's what this says. It's part of, uh, of what God is, is, has, uh, has instituted in the world. Um, but that doesn't justify the fact that it exists. There's, there is no justification for, for initiating violence against other people. This is not an abstract text. Some people like to pull it out of context, but we need to, to take a holistic view of Scripture and look at what, the God, what God says about the state throughout the Bible as we approach this passage. Uh, I am running out of time, so I'm only going to blow through this very quickly. Um, this, this chart here that I put together has, if you can read it all, 
has a, a lot of information about what I feel is the, kind of the future of building a Christian libertarian edifice of thought. And it involves a number of different things. Uh, I'll, I'll just highlight the main categories that I feel are important for our own understanding of scripture and, and kind of a, even call it a research program for the future. Uh, first is that we are always trying to build this theological critique of statism and the superiority of the kingdom of God. Our interest is not merely uh, being gadflies, but to have a, a, a real holistic view of what the state is and, and the, the function of the church and society. Uh, from there, we can reinforce a biblical theology of property rights in the free market. Um, we, we understand through our understanding of economics is that the free market is, is the way in which all of us interact peacefully together to build a prosperous society. It is not the state that does that, it is all of us as individuals working together. And this is supported very strongly through scripture and I think that, that is a, that's something we need to be constantly aware of. And finally, we, we want to, uh, from there, move towards a biblical theology of personal liberty and freedom to, uh, to make decisions, moral decision-making. And so if you want to learn more about this, I definitely invite you to come and, and visit with me at libertarianchristians.com. And uh, with that, I want to just uh, probably conclude there and give you a few uh, uh, possible questions for discussion. I hope that maybe during our lunch session uh, or our lunch, our lunch together, we might be able to discuss some of these things together. So a few, a few elements for discussion. What challenges do you see uh, to liberty in your church right now? And how can you address those? What strength does your own church tradition have that you can bring forward to, to build this edifice of Christian libertarian thought? We all come from, I mean, we have probably a good 30 different denominations in this room, and I'm really thrilled that we can see that from everyone from Eastern Orthodox to Catholics to a variety of different Protestant traditions. We all bring something to the table, and I hope that in your tradition you will find something that you can teach me about that I, that I didn't know before. And finally, what are some of the ways that you can help move the Christians that you know towards a better understanding of liberty? I hope that this has been useful to you. I hope that in, in some of your notes you will be able to take some of this home and bring these things to mind when you're discussing uh, with your Christian friends and your libertarian friends as to why Christian libertarianism is the most consistent expression of Christian political thought. With that, I invite your questions. We have just a few minutes, and I want to make sure that we're on time for our next speaker. Uh, so thank you very much, and we'll invite your questions now. So, yeah, one of the things along the lines of origins that, that you brought up in your talk there, Norman, is, is Babel and Nimrod and, and in this episode after the flood. I would, I would say we need to even look a little bit sooner than that in the biblical narrative to Cain and Abel, right? So Cain murders Abel, and he is exiled by God from the family, the fellowship with, with God and with the family of Adam. He's exiled, he's sent out, and the text says that he goes and he founds a city in his own image and likeness. And this is really the first quote-unquote city that we see uh, in in the biblical chronology. And this idea seems to be that Cain, he he kills his brother, he sheds this blood, he goes out, he creates an alternate community that is separate from the, the community of Adam and Eve walking with, with Yahweh. He's exiled, he creates a separate alternate community, and that from that comes forth all this evil that then leads forth into the flood. So it's almost like these these things are juxtaposed. You have, to, to use Augustine's term, you have the city of God over here, the people who are, who are walking with Yahweh, and you have the city of man, where man is trying to rule in his own image and likeness. Uh, and and it is, that leads to the flood, the flood happens, uh, and then from that again, we see them try again with, with what you talked about, Babel. And that's really the, the origins of the state in, in the biblical narrative. And like you had mentioned in your talk, it's overwhelmingly a negative portrayal. In, in no sense is it God saying, yes, do this. This is a good idea. It's actually rebellion against God. I know that a lot of left-leaning scholars or you know, maybe mainline scholars would probably say that in the Old Testament especially, there is a lot of conflicting viewpoints that you know, some authors would say that there's something in favor of the state— 
When I say authors, I mean these these scholars would say that there are authors in the Old Testament that have a favorable view of the state, and there are authors in the Old Testament that have an unfavorable view, view of the state, depending on how you're looking at it. But we, I think we clearly see a trajectory going to where in the in the New Testament we see Jesus is king, Jesus is Lord, Jesus rejects the the Satan's offer of the kingdoms of this world. And so it kind of comes to a point where you can look back over the Old Testament and say, okay, yeah, whoever thought it was a good thing was 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 not really, you know, perceiving God's will for Israel and for, you know, the good life of, of people who worship him. On this issue of first Samuel, you know, the the warning that God gives to Samuel about what will happen seems to 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 really lay out a trajectory of the expansion of state power. You know, it's it's basically saying, you know, if you if you take for yourself a human king, you reject the kingship of God. You take for yourself a human king. These are all the things that are that are going to happen. These are all the bad things that are going to result from that. And, and it almost seems to to demonstrate that you can't limit the 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 power of the king once he's in once he's in place. I mean the the tendency of power is to expand itself, and that's the tendency of the state is to expand itself. I mean, you can try to limit it, and you can do various things that may have some short-term efficacy, but really if you if you decide that we're going to have a state and we're going to give someone or some group of people this monopoly power to arbitrate uh, order in our society outside of market forces, uh, there – there is no mechanism really for efficiently and truly limiting that. It will always grow to whatever it can get away with. Indeed, and that's actually exactly what we see in the history of Israel. And I don't really get into this in the talk, obviously. If we were to throw in some information about what happens in between 1 Samuel 7 and the next topic, which will in, which will be uh, the life of Jesus— you know what, what? What we'd find is that <laughs> there's no, there's pretty much no good king. Even the best of them did terrible stuff. Even David, the man after God's own heart, did some absolutely heinous things. There's no good king. Hardly any of them did much in the way of reform. There are some there are some exceptions, of course, but ultimately we saw that we see that their expansion of power and that their, uh, that their rebellion against God leads to destruction after destruction and ultimately to the exile. And we see, you know, as well that, there, that the, this, or we see this very clearly in the words of the prophets. From the beginning to the end of the prophets, you see criticism after criticism of not just the people, but their leaders. Their, their leaders being kind of representative of them, of course, um, but there's there's a sense in which you know they are held to a higher standard even uh, than the people themselves. The leaders are n- never given a, a free pass because well you know they had to do what was necessary or something. No, they're held to they're held to a standard. They're held to account, and uh, and that's just it. Just goes to show that like this is what happens when you have the corruptive tendency of power. So here's a question: You just said that you to your libertarian longhorns that you don't. You don't need them in prison because they're, they're, they're almost no good in there in terms of the cause for liberty, I suppose. What do you think about civil disobedience? Is there a place for that in the life of the Christian? I think there is, but it has to be done on very specific terms. There is a point in the book of Acts, for instance, where uh, the, the apostles are going around preaching and they get, they get accosted by the authorities and they say, we must obey God rather than men. And there's our instances, uh, other instances in, in Scripture, in both in the Old Testament, for instance, in the Book of Daniel, uh, where they are very clearly, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are to, uh, they will not bow down before the golden image uh, of, of Nebuchadnezzar, and so they would be, you know, thrown in the fire instead, and they will not back down. Those are forms of civil disobedience that I think that is what we are meant to kind of practice, if anything, is that we will not. Uh, kowtow to the to the demands of the state to suppress the 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 uh, progress of the gospel in any way, and we are extremely blessed in in this country at least uh, through through the good the good graces of God to not have to deal with that. But we should recognize that 
there are many, many brave people throughout the world who are executing some wonderful acts of civil disobedience in the progress of preaching the gospel out there. And we should be uh, so respectful and, and aware of what's going on in that respect and praying for our brothers and sisters in other countries like that. So there you have it, another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, where we annotate a talk from one of our Christians for Liberty conferences. If you'd like to reach out to us and ask a question or submit some feedback, you can reach us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com, as well as on Facebook, Twitter, and of course our website, libertarianchristians.com. Thank you to all of you who have already sent us in emails with your feedback. We hope you'll keep listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. Libertarian Christian Podcast.